demonstrated through your willingness to take our place, to die in our place on Calvary, to be buried and to rise again, proving that the Father had accepted the sufficiency of your work on our behalf as being complete, as being satisfactory, as fully having resolved the debt that was owed by all sinners for all time. Pray that we would live in light of that. We would remember just how much you love us as we touched on last Wednesday with I dare you to believe how much I love you. And as we live in light of God's great love for us, that that would produce a desire to live our lives in a way that would lift him up, not through our own strength, but that we would just have that desire as then equipped and enabled by your spirits that we'd live lives that would have purpose and meaning. They would have value. They would be characterized by your peace and your joy and your contentment. Pray that when those things are missing, we would realize that we have our eyes on the wrong thing, that we're not focused on the author and finisher of our faith, but we're focused on ourselves or our circumstances or others that you have put in our lives, that we would reorient our thinking, that we would be quick to do that, that we wouldn't spend years wandering around in the muck and mire. We wouldn't spend years leaning on our own understanding, but we would realize that quickly. You would make us aware of it so that we could have a change of thinking and again, a change of focus and get our eyes back on you. Pray that this lesson even here tonight would serve as a good reminder, a nice midweek reminder of who you are, what your desires and goals and objectives and instructions are for our lives with the purpose that we would take in that truth from your word and we would allow you to make the necessary changes in our lives and we would use these next days in a way that would bring you honor and glory. Thank you that we could gather, that we have this building to gather in. Pray that we would see how blessed we are, that we would keep our focus on the things that matter most and what we have in common in Christ, that we would strive together for the furtherance of the gospel in a way that the community around us could see your bright light being reflected by this church family. Pray that everything that is said tonight would be accurate and clear and useful and pray that you would get all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you haven't already, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where we're going to pick up again tonight. It's been a, a bit since we did the first part of this mini-series, but that's where we're going to be spending our time tonight. The title, again, of this mini-series is We Exhort You. We Exhort You. And it's been a number of weeks, so I'll just remind us of a couple of things. But this word exhort, it means to encourage to implore, to entreat, to urge, or request earnestly. So this idea of, I entreat you, I encourage you, the underlying Greek word I mentioned when we started this series is often translated with the word beg. I beg you, I plead. I'm pleading and entreating with you as one would someone else in their life who they love dearly and who is convinced that what they're asking or instructing is actually for the benefit of the one that they're speaking to. And so if I speak some truth or give you some instruction, but I'm coming from a place of being absolutely convinced that this instruction and this advice would benefit you in a way that would make your life better, that would enhance the quality of your existence, then I would do it in a way where I would have this sense of urgency, this sense of there would be even an emotional aspect to it perhaps as I would beg you and entreat you and implore you to take that advice to heart. So again, we have this request and and it's going to be a series of 15 different exhortations or instructions or advice if you want to take it that way. But we have these requests being communicated passionately. 
with this desperate desire that the recipients would respond favorably to the instructions that are given. So there's this mentality in the way this is communicated that this isn't just speech that is being thrown out into the world with no expectation that it will have any effect on anyone. It's, it's this emotional urging and begging and entreaty and imploring of those that are loved with this idea that they would take that advice and they would allow it to apply to their lives or be applied in their lives. Again, we know as empowered by and directed by God's Spirit. So Paul takes this posture of exhorting or pleading or instructing those that he's speaking to very often because he has this deep concern for people. One of the things that I hope you see as you read through the New Testament, and I I hope you take time to spend in God's Word, but as you're reading the letters that Paul writes, you can't help but be reminded that there's this strong sense of how much care and compassion and concern and love he has for those that he's writing to. And it comes out in the way he writes things. So he commonly exhorts his believer audiences that he's writing to to heed the instructions that are given. So we noted one example of that was Romans 15.30 where he says, and it's translated, Now I beg you, brethren, these are my family in the faith, brothers and sisters in the faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that's what's motivating me, not a desire to be the big dog, not a desire to have everybody obey me, not, not wanting to get all the glory or have all the spotlight, like often is the case by nature, but because I love you. It's the love of the Spirit that's motivating me to beg you, brethren, to heed this advice. And the advice that's given in that particular context is that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that there would be this common prayer life amongst the believers where they would be praying to a God of the possible who can work in miraculous ways and can answer our prayers in a way that's exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. And and, and so he's entreating them, he's begging them to join me in having this prayer life where we're striving together in our prayers for a common objective and a common purpose. Now he says the same thing as he seeks there's pastoral epistles. Some most everyone here is familiar with those. So we have first and second Timothy and Titus written to young pastors who Paul has been mentoring, and so they have that pastoral feel to them as one pastor is sort of speaking to younger pastors and giving some advice. And he's advising them to be exhorting their audiences, encouraging them, imploring them, and treating them, urging and requesting earnestly them in principles and truths and instructions from the word of God it's the instructions from the word of God that ultimately give life the Old Testament says and so in 2nd Timothy he writes to Timothy the last chapter of the last letter that he writes shortly before his death and he says preach the word with an exclamation point he says be ready in season and out of season and then he gives other advice convince rebuke exhort who the audiences that you're speaking to with all long suffering and teaching. And so there's these aspects of exhortation that are necessary for those who want to be reminded or need to be reminded of God's truths. And so Paul, again, frequently dabbles into this type of speech or instruction or advice to his audiences that he writes these letters to and presumably those that he speaks to in person as well. But he ends 1 Thessalonians with this series of exhortations. And they're intended to benefit the fellow believers that they're addressed to. They're communicated from a place of love and concern, and there's 15 of them. 
So in part one of this series, we got through the first four. So I'm not going to promise how many we'll get through tonight, but we're going to look at some more here tonight. And we had just taken this little pause or segue, if you will, in our Wednesday night studies to, as I came across this passage in my own devotions, and was just blown away by how many instructions Paul was passing on to believers that he cares about. And so I thought, you know what, let's do a little mini-series on this. I thought maybe one message, two messages, probably going to be three or four messages, but we'll work our way through the rest of you, uh, rest of this. So let's just read it all again so we have it fresh in our mind. We'll pick up in verse 14. And there's actually a couple more of these. If you went further back, you'd find a couple more exhortations, but I decided to start with 14 and to go through verse 25. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. And so pray for us is how he ends up ending this series of 15 different exhortations. Now, by way of preliminary observations, we commented on, so I'm going to go through it very quickly here. But again, I know it's, it's been a bit, and it's easy for these things to be forgotten. But these exhortations are all communicated in the imperative mood. It's a way of communicating in the Greek language that has this sense of this is being directed to you, some say in the form of a command, but the idea is that I'm giving you instruction with the expectation that you will heed the instruction because you'll realize who it's coming from and that it's coming from a place of concern for your well-being in this context, though certainly it can be used from a figure of authority communicating to somebody who is subject to that authority. But in the context of the New Testament, I think the better way of looking at it is people who have a deep concern for others who are in a place of teaching or communicating God's truth as led and directed by his spirit speaking through them, they pass along God's truth and instruction to others that they love. So it's instruction and advice, I think is another good word that would tie in there. Advice that is given with a sense of if you want to have the intended outcome and the intended outcome is to thrive spiritually, you will heed this advice. But knowing that, there's a volition aspect, volitional aspect to this where the audience or the listener has to take in that truth, advice, or instruction and determine Am I going to heed that or not? It's not forced upon them. It's being directed to them in the form of, if you do these things, you'll experience the outcome, which is to have a, thrive, a thriving spiritual life. But if you don't, it's significant if you don't heed these because it's going to be to your detriment. And so that's the sense that, that I take on it. They're critical to your spiritual Success and they're communicated with this expectation that you would see the authenticity 
in my motives. You would see the author behind this as being God himself speaking through me as his truth was communicated to me and that you would see that God knows better than you know and so you would then take that advice to heart. So it has this parental flavor. It's always intended to benefit you. Why? Because the author behind it all or the source behind it all is ultimately God himself and God is always for you. God is always good and God is always for you. He's always on your side. He's always wanting what is best for you. He is never trying to harm you. He's always trying to lift you up. He's always trying to provide for you in a way that would advance, advance you spiritually to a place where you're being conformed over time to be a greater reflection of him so that his mind would become your mind and that you would be conformed into the image of his son. As he works that transformative process in you, you can call it progressive sanctification, you can call it practical sanctification, meaning there's a process over time that's taking place from the moment a person is saved until the moment they're taken to be with the Lord where God is working a good work in you, where he's seeking to work in your thinking and then to change your thinking and after changing your thinking to necessarily then change every aspect of your life as he becomes the one that's directing more and more often in place of our natural tendency to direct our own steps to be the one who wants to be in charge, so to speak. And so with that being said, Paul has this series of exhortations that he has given to those that are in Thessalonica. Now, the ones we went through all come from the 14th verse here, verse 14. They, they were warned, those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. And I'm not going to review them more than that if you want to have a more substantive conversation or message about that or discussion about that. Pull up that message on our Sermon Audio account through our website or through Sermon Audio directly and catch up with those ones if you missed those ones. But we're going to pick up in verse 15 and the first exhortation in verse 15 is see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And so that's fairly straightforward. There's not a lot to have to really explain there but there's some meat that we can try to pull from the bone, so to speak, as we look at that statement. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. So you have two very definitive words there, no one and anyone. And they're absolute. There's a lot of absolute in there. There's no one that's excluded from this instruction and there's no one that it doesn't apply to. So there's no exceptions where you, as far as God is concerned, are permitted or justified in returning evil for evil. It says it's never appropriate to do that with anyone and nobody should be doing that. And so very often we are creatures of justification. We're creatures of trying to make excuses for what we want to do anyway. We get a sense of what's just or what's fair or what's right and we apply that justice in our lives as we see fit and we always have a way of making ourselves feel okay about it convincing ourselves that in fact we're right. This is one of those instances where an eye for an eye comes in and the Bible says, no, that's not really my view of things. We get a sense that you get what you deserve. Uh, If you treat me in a certain way, I'll respond in kind in that way towards you. But that's not grace. 
If, if we're to be emulating Christ, and Christ is the example of what grace and mercy is, tender, loving kindness towards others, or graciousness in the sense of acting towards others with a sense of what's best for them regardless of what it costs me in light of eternal truths, in light of eternity, but wanting what's best for them motivated by a desire to lift them up and to do what's right for them or best for them, whether they deserve it or not, without any regard for whether or not there's merit on their part. In fact, grace is to, be, is to be doled out without any regard for merit. Otherwise, it's not grace at all. And so that's interesting that you have those kinds of words there. But what does this involve? So what does this mean to not render evil for evil? Well, I think kind of practical, and, I, and my question there is intended to bring us to more a practical application of something that I think is pretty straightforward in terms of the language itself. What does this involve? Well, it, it involves practically giving things to the Lord. Uh, if I were to summarize it, it means that when people behave in an evil way towards us, it involves giving it to the Lord. It means trusting the Lord with it. It means God ultimately will handle it. I want you to turn to a passage that I think brings out this principle or supplements this principle, and that's Romans chapter 12. So if you want to turn there tonight, we'll do a little bit of page turning. Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Keep a finger there. We'll be coming right back to 1 Thessalonians 5. But let's read verses 17 through 21 and see how this principle kind of comes out in another passage written by the Apostle Paul, but again, ultimately written by God for our benefit as he spoke through human authors. So verse 17 is almost a duplicate of this. Repay no one, there's the no one again, evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Don't fixate on evil, even if it's been perpetrated against you. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, meaning you're only responsible for your part of things. You know, very often, our way of looking at the world is, I'm going to not do this to somebody because they haven't done that to me or, or for me. Or I'm going to do this to someone because they did do that to me. So think of a really simple example. I'm not going to take the time to help this person out in need that God has made me aware of that, of that need. I'm not going to do that because in the past they had the opportunity to help me when I had a need and they, they didn't do that. So it has this mentality of responding in kind. And the alternative side of the flip side of that is I'm going to repay evil with evil because they acted in an ungodly or evil or harmful manner towards me. And so that's how I'm going to respond to them and that's what justice looks like. But God is giving us a different way of seeing things here to as, as much as is possible on our side of things anyway, live peaceably, now catch this, with all men. We have a God that puts a lot of absolutes in his word because he knows we'll be searching with a magnifying glass for wiggle room. Isn't that true? If God gives us an instruction, we'll be looking at it with a fine-tooth comb and a magnifying glass and say, well, maybe there's some way I can stick handle my way around this. But he says, no. Do that as it relates to all men, not just the men we agree with or like, but all men. In fact, it's obviously going to be harder with those that are more disagreeable to us. Now, verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, 
but rather give place to wrath. That's a reference to giving it over or giving God the proper uh, handling of that. And it's, it's written in a kind of confusing way there. But it's, it, it's explained by what follows. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Meaning it's very difficult for somebody to remain your enemy while you're responding to them in love and kindness, even when they don't deserve it. They will recognize that. They will be at times very convicted by that. But note that we're talking about your enemies here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. But now verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now what is the source of any good in your life? Well, God himself. There is no good that doesn't come from above. Every good thing comes from him. The only reason you have any capacity for good true good, divine good, is because the Spirit of God is seeking to produce that fruit in your life as you remain abiding, as you remain with Him, continue living connected to Him, and abide in Him. Then His goodness comes out of you. But that's the only way that good would come from you at all. So you don't, do not be overcome by evil. Why would that have to be stated? Because naturally, we're overcome by evil. We see red. Somebody wrongs us and we see red. And the only thing that we can have on our mind is vindication, getting back, getting even. And sometimes that goes on forever or for long periods of time. Sadly, I'll say, I've been party to or witnessed that go on amongst friends. This is speaking about enemies. We'll touch on that in a, in a second. How can the best of friends or even within families, how can that go on in, indefinitely people clinging to having been wronged when the Bible says this is how we're supposed to treat our enemies. But we'll touch on that again in a second. So there's a complimentary passage from Paul speaking the same type of thing. And the underlying idea, though, that comes out a little bit more clearly there is that we don't have to, in verse 15 there, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone We don't have to do that because ultimately God can handle it. So what does it mean? Give it to the Lord. God is ultimately the one that can deal with justice. He is the one who can deal with what is the right or proper response to how to handle somebody who's acting in those ways, how God is capable of dealing with that person. The question is, he wants to deal with you. How are you going to respond as he seeks to train you and teach you and show you something about himself even in the face of adversity? So that's the first principle. God, give it to the Lord because God will handle it. The second principle about what does this mean is we're to respond with love. We're to respond with love. Let the love of Christ, compassion and grace direct you as you're faced with somebody who is acting in a way that is described as evil or unjust towards you. And so we'll look at a couple of passages where let's just focus on one for tonight. Matthew 5.44. You can turn there if you want. Matthew 5.44. I'll read it, but I don't have it up on the screen. So 
if you want to see it with your own eyes, Matthew 5, 44. Most of you are familiar with this passage. This is Jesus speaking. So we had Paul speaking before, now we have Jesus speaking. He always takes it, well, he takes it to a whole, a whole other level here. But he says this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Because there was this mentality and he was being challenged by this ideology of getting even with or doing to people as they deserve. And he's saying, but I say to you, love your enemies. There's a contrast to human thinking, to the natural mindedness of man. Jesus is saying this stands in stark contrast to the way you would naturally handle this personally in your flesh and the way society even might handle this. It's higher ground. It's an eternal perspective. It's a citizen of heaven kind of a mentality. It's eternal mindedness instead of being focused on the temporal realm. It's a different mindset for a Christian than the others of the world around us. So love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. You're saying, I'm supposed to love my enemies. Yeah, and one step further than that, I'm to bless those who curse you. And then one step more than that, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And he said that a lot of different ways. Enemies, those that are cursing you, those that are hating you, those that are spitefully using you, and those that are persecuting you, just because, again, we have that natural tendency of saying, I'm supposed to respond in love to these people, but there's some exceptions that I can get around this somehow. No, respond in love to everyone, but in this context, it's the one who's rendering evil unto your enemy. And I think that is just absolutely profound. No, nobody you could discuss this verse with from a human perspective would say, I can get behind that. Now, possibly you'd find somebody who, who would say, yeah, that's my mindset from some kind of a humanistic perspective. I haven't found him yet. I know that person doesn't live inside of me in terms of my natural man. And so, this is Jesus speaking the divine. He's not speaking the worldly. He's speaking the divine here. And so, one of the things that just blows me away as I look at this passage, and perhaps I've touched on it in the past. I mean, eventually I'm going to run out of things that I haven't touched on maybe, but Matthew 5, 44, this is profound in the sense that the exhortation is to love your enemies. As you meditate on that principle it should be infinitely easier to love and forgive your friends. I heard this lyric in a song recently. So again, maybe newer songs, not your thing, not your style, whatever. doesn't matter. There's some great truths in them. But the convicting principle from this newer song is, but how are we going to love our enemies when we can't even love our friends? We build walls, but we're called to build bridges instead. And you think about how are we going to love our enemies when we can't even love our friends? And think about the things that have held you back. Think about the things that have burned relationships in your life. 
Think about the people that you're no longer invested in, that you're no longer in communication with, that you no longer spend time with, that you no longer fellowship with. Now, there's sometimes there's the ability to love people and not be able to live life with them in a close context. Sometimes there's some legitimate reasons for that. It would take more thought on my part to make sure I say that or explain that right, but there are some legitimate reasons for that. Perhaps because of some of their mentality currently, there's not a way for you to be around them in close proximity in a way that doesn't, isn't detrimental to your own spiritual walk. Sometimes they've gotten just plain goofy in some of the things that they believe or some of their philosophies or some of their doctrines, and it's really hard to fellowship with them because you don't have a common mentality or common understanding of the things that matter most anymore. But other times, it isn't that. There's no doctrinal issue. There's no issue as far as something that has undermined your relationship in such a way that you have no ability to be around them in a way that would be encouraging to them or you. Some of it is they just did something, something relatively small got in the way, and that little sliver that got under your skin, it festered and festered and festered and festered. I had a sliver the other day. It was driving me mad. A tiny little sliver. And though small, it was greatly irritating to me. And being an obsessive type of person at times, Stacia just laughed. Having that personality, it's hard for me to quit thinking about something like that. So just like your neurotic pet who keeps licking themselves and rubbing all of their skin off, you've got to put the cone of shame on them so that they can heal, you can't let it go. And it's just a little sliver. It's really not doing any significant harm. It's just an irritation that's there. But you know what the thing about slivers is? It's not that hard to get them out. It's a little bit painful, but you 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 take the safety pin. You've been there before. Maybe you had the tweezers. Maybe you had a little razor. You've got to inflict a little bit more damage, but then it's easy to get them out. And how much better does it feel when it's out? It feels incredible. But you know what we've allowed to happen sometimes even within our own families of faith? If we've allowed relatively small little slivers to just fester away there, we don't take the time to maybe have that additional conflict that would come from trying to resolve something, but knowing that the end result would be worth it. We don't do that. We just distance ourselves from those people. We find a new clique of people. We quit living life with that person as closely as we used to. And the whole thing was relatively minor to begin with. Was it perhaps thoughtless, what happened? Maybe. Was what was said maybe spoken in haste and wasn't something that the person would say again if they had time to think about it? Yeah. Was it an opinion that maybe was really strong at the time, but they don't even hold that point of view anymore? Oftentimes that's the case. Was what they said wrong? Oftentimes. Was it hurtful? Oftentimes. Was what they did thoughtless? Possibly. The point just being is it's really relatively small though in the grand scheme of this life, let alone eternity. And so I was just really touched by that idea. We're to love our enemies, but what about our brothers and sisters? What about our fellow church members? 
Shouldn't we have more patience and compassion and love and concern for rectifying and remedying some of those things than we do for enemies? And God is saying the standard is way higher than friends that have wronged you. It's enemies that are actively rendering evil towards you. So what's the third principle here? What does this mean? See that no one renders evil for evil. Well, it involves forgiveness, and I've touched on that here Forgive those who wrong you. And Ephesians 4.32 is one of the first verses that I learned. Why? Because I think a parent who has more than one child knows that one of the first verses that a child needs to learn is probably 1, John 3.16 or something like that. They need to be taught right from a very early age how much God loves them and what he did to demonstrate that love for them. So John 3.16 is probably right there. Next one is probably children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. The next one after that though if they have siblings or there's a household of sinners that are uh, living together they need to learn Ephesians 4.32 and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And so if you think about that principle that's what's being brought out here that's an underlying what does this mean how does this apply from a practical perspective well it applies in a sense of giving it to the lord it involves responding with love and it involves forgiving people who wrong you that's all wrapped up in this one statement see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone now what does this not involve so we've talked about what not responding in kind might look like, not returning evil with evil on your own part. But what does it not mean? And I thought this is worth touching on just very briefly because it does not mean do nothing. So see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. It doesn't mean do nothing when somebody is perpetrating evil against you. You certainly can take action or respond when you or others are subjected to evil the instruction is not to do nothing or have no action the instruction is to not respond in kind it's not to repay or return evil with more evil it's about not retaliating your response should not be to retaliate get even get back at someone that doesn't mean you couldn't take actions to protect yourself against additional trauma or additional abuse additional evil being perpetrated against you. It just means as you take those actions, it's to be done with a mindset of giving it to the Lord ultimately. Two, doing it from a place of love. And three, having a mindset of could I forgive this person? That's very hard. Very, very hard. But some people have taken this to the extreme where they've actually taught that you're to do nothing. You're just to passively stand by and let people keep abusing and misusing and mistreating you and that's not that's not the underlying principle the principle is don't adopt don't adopt their sinful perspective and have this idea of responding in kind or retaliating with evil for evil so what are some biblical examples of people that were faced with being having evil perpetrated against them and had god's kind of a response to that well there's at least two obviously that should come out There's probably more, but these are the two that came. Turn to Acts chapter 7. It's a fascinating perspective of one who is being wronged, who is applying Matthew 5.44 in a practical real-life scenario that would be 
next to impossible for us to imagine. To set the stage, this is the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He's being mistreated. He's standing for his faith. He is trying to instruct and educate and even help the people that are at the same time attacking him. So he's defending his faith and he's doing it in a way that ultimately is going to cost him his life. But he's not shirking from the danger that's in front of him. He has this incredible attitude and this incredible testimony of standing fast for what is right and what is true in the face of human opposition. And so you should read that whole section if you have time for devotion here even later in the week because I think you'll find it to be incredible. He gives this whole uh, speech where he goes through the through the word of God in a way to try to convince them that they were wrong to be living in, operate, in unbelief or responding in unbelief to God's provision of the Messiah. But it's not compelling to them. They're not willing to listen to that. And so the determination is made to kill Stephen, to execute him. So he's the first martyr who's on hand for the execution of Stephen, on hand or present there, is Paul. He was present while Stephen was stoned to death. And so you can, read, you can see that in verse 58, that, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's before Saul's name was changed to Paul. That's who we're talking about, the same person who is writing this advice or instruction to those that he loves dearly here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in Romans as we already looked at. So now 59, the point of this that I came here for is what is Stephen's response though to the evil that's being perpetrated against him? It says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and the last words that he chose to speak as he was being martyred, he was saying this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Did he know where he would spend eternity? Sounds, seems like he did. Then he knelt down and he cried with a loud voice. Imagine that these are your last words as evil men are murdering you. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. Does that give you chills? It does me to think about not rendering evil for evil. What more extreme example could you come up with than that? And the only other example that might be more extreme is what they did to Jesus, right? And so if you think of the example of Jesus in Luke 23, 33 through 34, Jesus, it says, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. But what, are, what does Jesus say? Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Imagine heart, having that heart of forgiveness and having a desperate love for the very people who are killing you. 
That's not something that could come from your humanity. That's not something your flesh could ever produce. That is a supernatural perspective that defies all human reason. And yet, that's the example that we have in the Bible. So when we looked at, see that no one renders evil for evil, there's actually quite a bit there. Give it to the Lord, he'll handle it. Respond with love and forgive those who are wrong, but don't take this perspective that you should do nothing while people are perpetrating evil against you. It's not about doing nothing, it's about your mindset toward the people who are acting in that way towards you. Now what's the next part of verse 15? Pursue what is good. So see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. There we have that definite language again. Always pursue what is good for yourselves and for all. This is something that again, no wiggle room on this. So there's no justification for not doing this. There's no, there's no exceptions to this. It's very black and white. It's funny, we live in a world that promotes relativism, a world that is attacking everything that is foundational, trying to redefine the very definitions of absolute things that ought not to, there ought to be no debate about even. But as the world seeks to more and more pursue and perpetrate this view that there is nothing true, And if there's nothing true or every man determines his own truth, that's the definition of relativism. It's relative to your own human experience. And so if each person determines his own truth and every man does what is right in his own eyes, and there's no standard to compare anyone's opinions to, then we're talking about the very definition of what Satan has been perpetrating from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Satan has been attacking truth. So I will... I will acknowledge that at this phase in human history, it seems like the truth is even more under attack than at other phases in human history. But yet it's not unique in the sense that from the absolute very beginning, Satan's primary objective was to convince people that what God had said was not true, was true, in fact was not true, and to exchange the truth of God or the truth of God's word for a lie. So Roman tells us that that's what man has been doing, exchanging God's truth for Satan's lies, and that that's been going on from the very beginning. He's the father of all lies. He's ultimately the chief deceiver. And of course, he's gone about deception and deceiving and perpetrating his lies in a lot of different ways. Some of them have been packaged really nicely. Some of them have looked an awful lot like truth. Some of them have been 90% truth and 10% lies. Some of them have been 99% truth and 1% lies. That's why I'm not a mathematician there. 99 and 1. Oftentimes, the things that he has convinced people are true are, let's just say, 1% true. And people have still believed that it's true. But it's the full gamut. It's not one approach to packaging his lies and convincing people to accept them. But I have no idea what I meant with that. Complete loss there. So we're going to leave that thought. Pursue what is good. And so there's no exceptions. There's no justification for it. It's this idea that there's, there's no time where you should be able to convince yourself that it's okay to be pursuing anything other than what God says is good. And I think that's maybe where I got at that in terms of Satan is always trying to convince man 
to exchange God's truth for lies. And so God has a standard, an absolute standard. It's a set standard. It's a revealed standard of what is good. And this is saying pursue that. Pursue that. In in, in contrast to what? In contrast to what's a lie, to what's not true at all. So pursuit carries this idea of striving toward an objective or chasing after something. Think about desperately running after something. That's the underlying idea with this word pursue. We saw that when we went through Philippians in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It says that in Philippians 3, 12, 2, uses the same, I press on. So I press on, I press toward, that's the idea of pursue here. It's the same Greek word. And so I'm pressing towards something, I'm striving after, I'm desperately running after something or chasing after something, perhaps like a hunter would chase after or pursue a meal or some game. And there's that sense of that desperate chase as if it were life and death. So what is good, of course, it refers to what is righteous. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have verse 22. And the second part of verse 22 says, but pursue righteousness. So we have that same word. Pursue what is right which is the equivalent of pursuing what is good. Now, what is right? Well, he goes on to say faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those are a reflection of God's righteousness in that moment, those that are presently walking by faith. What are some of God's characteristics or qualities that the Spirit produces in the man of faith? What is right? Well, it's faith, love, and peace. But it also can be characterized in the lives of those who are responding to God at a point in time. So he says, pursue that. Pursue what is right. That's what it means to pursue what is good. But then note that this is given as an alternative to what you are not to pursue or what you are to flee, what you are to avoid. So if you're pursuing what is right, it means that you're fleeing from something else or you're avoiding something else, and the first part of that same verse gives us that information, and then he carries on that idea in verse 23. So 2 Timothy 2.22a, in contrast to pursuing what is right, and those who are living a, a right life is kind of the idea. They're living from a right perspective as led and directed by the Spirit of God. Pursue those things and those people. But then in contrast to that, verse 22 starts with, flee also youthful lusts. So youthful lusts are something that we would naturally gravitate towards. So if we're going to pursue what is good, it means we're going to flee from the things that are unrighteous or the things that could be described as youthful lusts. But what else? But avoid, in verse 23, foolish and ignorant disputes. Why? Because we know that they generate strife. That has to be one of the most powerful verses in application to the typical Christian that there is in the New Testament. Some of you might not agree, but the number one thing I would say that gets in the way very often in our relationships and wastes our time, ends up choosing something that is useless for something that would be profitable, is the conversations that we have. So what do we do? We, we have foolish and ignorant disputes. Ignorant because we purport, we purport to have an absolute understanding of things when we have a very small understanding of things. We have very little perspective of what's actually going on. We have very little inside information into what's actually going on. But we reach these absolute conclusions that are completely inflexible and then we argue with people about it. 
We try to convince other people we're right about it. And none of it has anything to do with eternity. It's all temporal realm kind of nonsense. And it leads to foolish disputes. It, it leads to shunning people who don't agree with us. It, it leads to we move in one direction and we distance ourselves from others who won't agree, to, uh, won't agree with us about a point that we have very little understanding of anyway. We get very prideful and we have this idea that we have, have this special dispensation on truth and this special understanding about things and that anyone else who doesn't share that understanding is ignorant or must not have all the facts. And the reality is the amount of information we're basing those same conclusions on is infinitesimally, infinitesimally small and it's very little insight in the big picture, in the big scheme, in the big realm of things. But we get caught up in those things. I'm no exception to that. I have all kinds of strongly held opinions and beliefs about things that don't have any real eternal value. I used to spend a lot of my time having kind of that lawyer mentality. I used to spend a lot of my time arguing with people, trying to convince them that I was right about those opinions, those ideologies, those perspectives, those things that I spent my time thinking about. And so when I'd gather with other believers, it wasn't for my benefit or their benefit. I would just come together seeing them as a comrade, seeing them as a friend, seeing them as somebody who might be like-minded, and we'd fall right back into running, running through the same nonsense over and over again. I say nonsense not in the sense that it has no value or that you couldn't possibly be informed about something. I'm not trying to make absolutes here. I'm just saying that very often we were a couple of knuckleheads talking about things that we knew very little about, but in a way that couldn't feed our souls. It couldn't encourage our souls. It couldn't give us what we need in terms of spiritual nourishment, but just in terms of here's a couple of guys running through the same material again without any real insight into any of it when you get right down to it. And I think as I've matured and grown up a little bit, it doesn't mean I still don't have a lot of opinions. I do. It's just I don't see the value in those opinions like I once did. And you know what? It doesn't mean that I am ever standing up here saying that it's, it's not a good thing to have an interest in things or to be invested in things or to have a perspective about things or to give things to the Lord in prayer and to ask him for some direction and guidance in things or to get involved in things. That's not it at all. I'm just saying how much of our time is spent talking about things as if they're absolutes. When, in fact, very often if we were honest with ourselves and we look back at our lives, we would see many different examples where we thought we understood something and we now have a different view on it. We now see things differently. We now have more information. We now have been enlightened in a different way about it and so we don't hold the same perspective. But then think about all the time we spent talking about those things as if we were certain about them. Now, the only thing that we can be absolutely certain about that we can always have a benefit from talking about and a benefit from taking in and, and discussing is the word of God. And so anytime we choose to discuss something else, it's not always wrong, it's not always bad, but we're choosing that in place of something that we know would be very beneficial and would never fail us and would never let us down and would never be wasted. And so that's the challenge. That's the, that's the idea that's difficult to take in when you're thinking about the alternative to what is right, the alternative to faith, love, and peace, the alternative to fellowship with those that are calling on the Lord presently in a walk of fellowship with the Lord 
And they're doing that with, with a pure heart that's led and directed by God's Spirit. What do we trade that in for? And the reason I mention that versus other alternatives like youthful lust is very often Christians are really good at having eradicated some of the youthful lusts that mo- most people would think of when they think about what are those things that I've tried to push out of my life or I've let the Lord give me some movement or guidance or perspective on in my life. Very often, we've had some success when it comes to what we'll call just overt immorality or some of those things that young people are known to chase after for a season. And there's very few exceptions to it, unfortunately. So as you see people, the young people choke on the world in some very obvious ways, you say, that's youthful lust. It, it doesn't take much creativity to think about what those things were, maybe that you were able to let the Lord have, give you some victory over in your own life. But what, the reason I bring up that other thing is because when we have success in that area, we assume that we're doing great. And the reality is we've just traded something that we're chasing after that won't help us or won't have any lasting eternal value for something else that is packaged a little differently. It seems like a good thing, but it's actually still not something that would be the best use of our time. So the question is, what are you chasing after? What are you desperately pursuing? What's on your mind? What are you speaking about often? What is the focus of your existence? What are the things that you're prioritizing? And I'll tell you, it's not going to come naturally to pursue what is good. That's why it has to be an exhortation. Paul has to beg them, pursue what is good. And don't be deceived into thinking that something that something is good besides what is truly coming from God, his goodness. And that can be true in our lives. It just doesn't come easily or naturally. I think we're going to do one more here. Rejoice always, verse 16. Let's take a look at that. It's two words. We should be able to do that quickly, right? Rejoice always. Rejoice just means to feel happy or happiness or joy, to be glad, to be glad, to be glad always. It's another absolute, unambiguous, and inflexible word. So one definition says all the time and on every occasion. So be glad all of the time and on every occasion. You say, how is that possible? What about these difficult things I'm going through? What about these hard things that I'm going through? Well, it's possible to all of the time and on every occasion be glad by remaining close to him despite what you're going through. If he is the ultimate source of joy and his goodness is overflowing and he says, I'll fill your cup to the point where it's overflowing, then I can experience his goodness and joy even in the face of evil, difficulty, trial, hardship. I can, I can experience that even when things aren't all that good. I can still praise him in that storm. I can experience his joy and peace in the face of that adversity. So Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. So that's the answer. How is it possible to all the time and on every occasion be glad when you take into account all of the hard, difficult, painful experiences and trials that we face in our lives. It's because in your presence is where the fullness of joy is. So can I be in his presence while I'm going through hard and difficult things? The answer is yeah. If I choose to abide in him and remain connected to him, lean into him, stay close to him, however you want to put it, if I can do that in the face of the trial, then I can experience his joy because in his presence is fullness of joy. That's mind-boggling to think of that principle. 
First John 1, 3 through 4 says, That which we have heard, have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's our purpose statement for the whole book of First John that we finished recently. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. What's being connected there? Joy and fellowship. In your presence is fullness of joy. It's intimacy with God that is the source of our joy. So yes, if I can stay connected to him, if I can lean into him, if I can, if I can not stray from, stray from him or lean on my own understanding, if I can walk in the light in those difficulties and in those trials and I can keep my mind focused on the author and finisher of my faith, I can experience joy no matter what and truly say I'm rejoicing always in every time, all the time, in every occasion, I'm being glad. And so we have to be reminded that a Christian's joy does not spring from his circumstances, but from the, blessing, but from the blessings that are his because he is in Christ. So if I'm in Christ and he's in me, and in his presence is where fullness of joy is found, then can you see how you could rejoice always? It's hard to understand that from a human perspective, but from a divine perspective, that's what the word of God says and so then you think of this if that's true then a lack of joy a lack of gladness in your life or perpetual sadness is ultimately brought about as a result of not knowing not understanding or not trusting some aspect of your God because if in his presence is where fullness of joy is found and I'm having perpetual sadness if I'm not experiencing his joy, then that's because there's something missing. I don't know him the way I ought to know him. I don't understand him the way I ought to understand him. I don't understand his provision for me the way I ought to. Or I'm not trusting him right now because if I was trusting him right now, I would be experiencing intimacy with him right now. If I was experiencing intimacy with him right now, I'd be in his presence. If I was in his presence, I'd be where the source of joy is found. So if I'm not experiencing that, then there's some breakdown taking place there where I don't know him like I need to. I'm not trusting him like I need to or I don't understand him like I need to. So the question is, is your life characterized by rejoicing right now? Rejoice always. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Are you going through hard times right now? Everybody is in some way, some much harder than others. Can you experience his joy? The answer is yes. You could be rejoicing always, regardless of your circumstance. So God, through Paul, continues to encourage us to heed these instructions. Again, they're, they're given with our well-being in mind. They're given for our benefit. And so the question always becomes, will we respond? Will we heed these instructions? Will we allow the Spirit to produce a manner of living or a walk that is consistent with the application of these kind of exhortations in our life? That's what God wants to do in your life. So we looked at a few more here tonight. We'll pick it up where we left off next time. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Pray that we would see that an eternal mindset involves focusing first and foremost on eternity. 
So as we look at the substance of our lives and how we're investing that, as we look at the things that we're most often occupied with or the things that we're most often thinking about, that we would allow you to make the necessary changes in our lives so that these exhortations would be a reflection of us. They would be true of us. As your spirit produces that eternal way of thinking and that eternal way of living in and through us. Pray that we wouldn't think that we have it all figured out. Pray that we would acknowledge and recognize that life that's spent apart from you is a life that's wasted. Life that is not allowing you or not being used in a way that is allowing you to work in and through it is a life that's ultimately wasted. Life that is not spent prioritizing shining the spotlight on you and putting the focus on you is ultimately life that is wasted. Pray that you would give us that eternal perspective day in and day out so that we could have that mindset and attitude that says, I am redeeming the time that you've given me because it's fleeting and it's valuable and it's the only thing that I really have that ultimately should be cherished the most. Pray that I would use it in a way that would bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.